The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub online. My name is Eve Patton. I'm director of The Hub, which is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. In The Hub, we have a commitment to bringing the very best scholarship in the humanities to a wider public audience. And in that context, we've been tremendously honored over the past two and a half years to have hosted the extraordinary lecture series, Out of the Ashes which is coordinated by my distinguished colleague, the historian, Dr. Peter Crooks. And it's generously supported by friends of the Trinity Long Room Hub, Sean and Sarah Reynolds. There is always a lot of interest in these lectures. So please do join the conversation about them online. Uh, we are streaming live on Facebook and through our US partner, Irish Central. And uh, if you're on Twitter, please do tweet using at TLR Hub and the hashtag Hub Matters. Uh, later on in the evening's events, we will be opening the floor to um, a virtual question and answer session. And you can put your questions in the panel at the bottom of your screen, or if you're following on Facebook, use the Facebook question panel um, and put your questions in there. Now, those of you who have joined us before will know that Out of the Ashes takes its theme from Ireland's national archival tragedy, the destruction of the public record office of Ireland at the Four Courts in Dublin in 1922, almost a century ago during the Civil War. What the Out of the Ashes series has tried to do is to set Ireland's archival tragedy in a global context. And in line with the initiative of the 1995 UNESCO report, Lost Memory, which documented the destruction of libraries and archives through armed conflict and other disasters in the 20th century. Now this three-year lecture series has explored various different episodes of cultural loss, right from the destruction of the ancient library of Alexandria to uh, contemporary cultural violations. It's also addressed the ongoing vulnerability of our digital archives. We've heard from world leading experts on how societies deal with cultural trauma through reconstruction and commemoration. Uh, and we've also uh, learned how the international community should respond to cultural disaster on this scale. In this, its third and final year, the series has turned to the theme of recovery, a topic close to our hearts at the moment. And it's in that context that we're going to hear this evening about evidence aiding post-conflict recovery, the Mosul Museum Project Zero. Uh, as many of you may remember, in 2014, Daesh or ISIS established their so-called caliphate in the city of Mosul and carried out large scale intentional destruction of cultural artifacts and heritage across Iraq's Nineveh plain. But what happened after the liberation of Mosul in 2017 in the initial work of cultural recovery 
is an extraordinary story about the way in which heritage professionals manage what is in effect uh, a potential war crime scene. To tell you that story and to explain the procedures that are brought into play in these situations, I'm very pleased to introduce this evening's guest speaker, who is Corinne Wagner, director of the Smithsonian Cultural Rescue Initiative, the SCRI. Corinne's background is originally in museum creatorship, but she's adapted her knowledge and her own military background uh, to international cultural crisis. She's worked in projects in Syria, in Haiti, in Nepal, as well as in Iraq, as we'll hear. In 2006, Corinne founded the US Committee of the Blue Shield, which of course we heard about earlier in the series, an international organization which is dedicated to raising awareness of the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property in the event of armed conflict. And Corinne's efforts led to the US ratification of this important treaty in 2009. After Corinne has told us about her work in Mosul, we're going to have a response from Christine Morris. Uh, Christine is the Andrew A. David Associate Professor in Greek Archaeology and History here at Trinity. Um, she's a widely published classicist and archaeologist. Uh, she specializes in the Aegean and Eastern Mediterranean, and also uh, specifically at the moment on Cyprus. I'm very grateful to Christine that she's joining us this evening and bringing us uh, her expertise in this field. But now, with great pleasure, let me turn to ask Corinne Wagner to tell you more about the Mosul Museum Project Zero. Corinne. Thank you very, very much. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, Trinity uh, College Dublin for inviting me to this important lecture series. And um, I'm just sad that I can't be there in person with all of you because um, Dublin is one of my favorite cities in the world. Um, so first of all, I'm gonna try to share my screen. And there we go, talking about Mosul Museum Project Zero. So thanks so much for that um, really good introduction of a little bit of the background of this. Um, so, and of course, can't. I'm gonna stop sharing and try it again because I can't forward my slides. Let's try this. There we go. Okay. So um, as was mentioned, um, my, my civilian career is as an art historian. And um, for many years, I was a curator at the Minneapolis Institute of Art, but I had a sort of secret identity as an army reservist. And I actually um, served as a, an arts monuments and archives officer um, later in my career toward the end of my army reserve career. And um, sort of in the in the model of the monuments men and women of World War II, uh, Army Civil Affairs still had this function, but sadly, as you can imagine, there are not all that many art historians running around in the military um, these days in an all-volunteer force. And so there were very few of us, and we had a couple of archaeologists on the team, anthropologists, and myself. And we were faced with the looting of the Iraq Museum in 2003. 
And luckily I had the opportunity to work with Iraqi staff there and um, on the sort of back end of the recovery for about nine months. And I learned a lot from that experience, both um, the things that, that made me very depressed about the world of uh, disaster response for um, cultural heritage institutions, especially in uh, armed conflicts, but also a lot that I could use to try to make change within that system, both on the cultural heritage professional side, as well as um, on the military side. And so um, as uh, Professor Patton mentioned, I started the US Committee of the Blue Shield in 2006 with an emphasis on trying to provide at least some information about the 1954 Hague Convention for the Protection of Cultural Property and Armed Conflict, particularly to civil affairs officers and other military as they were getting ready to deploy overseas. <clears throat> Uh, and so I did that work for a while, um, working sort of two jobs, being president of the Blue Shield and uh, working at the Minneapolis Institute of Art. But in 2010, I worked with the Smithsonian on the Haiti Cultural Recovery Project. And um, there was really a demonstrated need in the cultural heritage field for more ability to quickly respond to cultural heritage disasters. And in 2012, the Smithsonian created the Cultural Rescue Initiative that I direct and uh, we've been working in this area ever since doing training as well as disaster response research and just raising awareness about the need for response for cultural heritage and how we train our professional uh, colleagues about this need. Um, one of the things that I've noticed over the years is the tendency both when um, civilians are harmed in armed conflicts or even in, in crimes, or when your, your house is broken into, when your museum is broken into, here you see scenes from the Iraq National Museum back in 2003. Um, there's this tendency to wanna to respond immediately, to want to recover as quickly as possible, to be able to clean up and erase the, the harm, erase the feeling of being violated as quickly as possible. But the problem with this is that you can lose something in that quick response. You can lose evidence. You can lose vital pieces of the story, vital pieces that might even be able to be used for a, a war crimes prosecution or a criminal prosecution of other kinds. Um, and, and I saw this again in Haiti um, in this need to actually mark cultural sites with uh, a, no a government number to show that they were cultural sites and not to bring bulldozers immediately to start tearing down and carrying away rubble. We needed to look through that rubble to see if there were artifacts actually in the rubble and to very carefully document the scene. Um, we even saw this earlier this month with the attack on the US Capitol. I was watching riveted to the television with everyone else. Luckily, most of the works of art were left undamaged. But here we see a congressman with that immediate, the same day with that immediate need to go and clean up, to erase this terrible um, event in American history as quickly as possible. But at the same time, I'm thinking to myself, there's evidence being lost. So um, after the, the attacks on the Mosul Museum, and as Dr. Patton mentioned, um, this was 
you know, uh, over a period of time, the um, Daesh was inhabited Mosul. They occupied Mosul and, and used it as the headquarters of their so-called caliphate. And the whole time I'm thinking to myself, who will be the ones to clean up this mess? Who will be the ones to document what happened here? Um, luckily, the Smithsonian uh, has a strong relationship with uh, a wonderful center in Erbil, Iraq, called the Iraqi Institute for the Conservation of Antiquities and Heritage. And um, colleagues of mine, uh, particularly Jessica Johnson, who's the head of conservation at the Museum Conservation Institute at the Smithsonian, has a long history um, going clear back to 2009 of working at the Iraqi Institute to provide training for Iraqi uh, professionals from across the entire country, including in the impacted particular area of Nineveh province where Mosul is located. And so um, we had this unique um, relationship with them and, and this work has been supported over the years by the US Department of State and other donors and um, had the luck to have worked with many of these professionals in the past. And so when we saw these terrible things happening in 2014, 15, 16, uh, we immediately tried to see how we could help starting back up again in 2016 and asking the State Board of Antiquities and Heritage, how can we help you? What are your priorities? And so the, um, the, uh, the Iraqi military as part of a coalition of, of forces finally declared, um, well, they, they started the Battle of Mosul, they began to push Mosul further and further west. And uh, the archaeological site of Nimrud, which was um, uh, heavily damaged in intentional explosions in 2015, um, turned out to be a priority of the Iraqi government. And they asked the Smithsonian how they could help. And so we, we began a project. And this is where this idea of um, what I'm talking about here is it's recovery, but it's very early recovery. It's almost, I, I almost want an extra space in between response and recovery to talk about the need to stop, breathe, and plan in between because the, this, this need to rush in can, can also be dangerous. Um, there's uh, a lot of unexploded ordnance around in the site of Nimrud. Um, there's a need to sit down and um, map things out, make a plan, prioritize, and emerge a huge site. And so you see us here, we're working, um, and, and we also wanted to train staff in things like first aid and, and uh, mines awareness, et cetera. So we, we did a lot of work with colleagues from uh, Nineveh Province State Board of Antiquities and Heritage and the Ministry of Culture both in the classroom here at the Iraqi Institute in Erbil and out in the field to kind of practice and go through these motions and talk about how you prioritize what you're going to recover, talk about salvage operations, talk about how to carefully document each and every piece of sculpture that we were able to pick up there and um, stabilize and rehouse it to await further recovery in the future. So that idea started with this with the um, colleagues from Nineveh province at that time. And then um, luckily then when the uh, Iraq Ministry of Culture asked Aleph, the International Alliance for the Protection of Heritage and Conflict Areas, a Geneva-based NGO, um, for help with the Mosul Museum uh, after the liberation of Mosul, 
then we were lucky enough to be invited to be a part of that team. And the idea behind it, and the reason I underline zero is because that's what I'm talking about. It's that space between response and recovery. We knew that before we could start recovery, we needed to carefully document everything that was that had happened there, sort of like a cold case crime scene. <clears throat> and the idea behind it, <clears throat> behind these partners, was that it would be museum institutions helping a museum institution. So the Mosul Cultural Museum and its staff working closely with the Smithsonian Institution and our staff and the staff at the Louvre Museum, whom they also had a close relationship with to work um, on conservation of the collections as we began to stabilize. So um, our goals were a systematic documentation, an engineering assessment of the building. It was unclear after all the destruction on the interior of the building, and you'll see what I mean in a moment, whether that building could actually be renovated in the future or whether it was too heavily damaged. We needed to do an initial damage assessment, emergency stabilization, both of the building and of the collections, and then prepare for collection salvage. So you can see what I mean. There are a lot of steps in between before you can even do that salvage and before you can start to fix things and do recovery. Um, in order to do that work, we began preparation by collecting existing documentation, gathering an expert team, crime scene documentation and evidence training, which most of us had not had in the past, but we knew we were going to need something like that. Hazardous environment awareness training, um, heat training, which is, is not very fun, lots of first aid and um, understanding how to negotiate um, and be, be held hostage potentially and things like that. Not very fun, but necessary. And then uh, coordinate for security. Um, that trip, while Erbil was very safe at the time, the trip going into Mosul was considered to be kind of dangerous at the time. And so we needed to have security with us. Um, so that gathering documentation phase, we were, we were lucky enough to, in uh, October of 2017, we were in Erbil and we met with the staff from the Mosul Museum and they started to provide us with the kind of overview we needed to start thinking about building our team including the historic uh, overview of the, of the museum. The original building was a small palace that opened in 1952, expanded um, in 1974 with the building by Mohammed Makia, a, a famous Iraqi architect. And so this idea of the building being renovated was really important um, to think about. Uh, we understood from the colleagues there the layout of the building, uh, had a discussion of the different uh, of the different uh, halls that had housed different collections. And so you start to, I, I, I liken this to um, if you've ever looked for a house online and you look through the photos of the house and you have a hard time figuring out from the photos what it would be like to walk through the house, to see the house. And this is what we were trying to get a sense of. Those of us who'd never been there really needed to understand. And so um, our, our colleague, um, the director, Zaid Ghazi, kind of gave us this walkthrough of these pictures of the museum before the attack. And you see that there are not a lot of objects in the cases. Um, these are mostly large scale objects. And that's because most of the collections that were movable had been stored in Baghdad 
before the um, US invasion in 2003, thus um, saving a lot of those smaller portable items that were safely stored at the museum. Yes, the Iraq Museum um, was looted, but those collections remained stored in crates and were not, were not lost. Um, the lower, lower um, level had a library of more than 27,000 volumes. And the Islamic Gallery, you see here. Um, so ISIS actually occupied this building for um, more than two years. They used it as a sort of a headquarters for taxation, and um, which was a little bit strange. But they also, as you've uh, as you saw in the news, and as Professor Patton described, um, the due to their um, ideology, uh, religious ideology, ill-founded um, against the type of materials that were in the museum and, and around, the, um, around Iraq, actually, around Nineveh province. Um, they intentionally destroyed many, many objects that had never been thought of as potentially um, idolatry before, as potential idolatry in the past. So um, once the um, ISIS started to be moved out of Mosul, um, it, it lagged behind because the museum lagged behind being liberated because Western Mosul was sort of the last bastion. The old city was sort of the last bastion of Daesh as they moved further and further west and were pushed out. And finally, around December of 2016, as, as they were fleeing uh, the site, they actually uh, burned the library. All, all 27,000 volumes were lost. And so when our Iraqi colleagues um, you know, learned of this, they were excited, but they weren't able to access the museum right away. The Western Mosul was still a sort of battle zone. Um, it was also damaged by the, um, by the battle uh, to, to retake Mosul. And it became a kind of an area of instability for quite a while. But when they were finally able to access the building again, this is what they saw. So as closely as possible, these are before and after photos. You see the giant hole in the floor. And it took, I'd seen that photo many times, but it took sort of Zaid walking us through it for us to really understand that that had been a throne dais from the archaeological site at Nimrud, from the palace at Nimrud. And they literally put explosives under it and used so much that they blew a large hole in the floor. Um, that that the giant stones on the edge of the hole to the right were ac are actually the pieces of the Lamassu sculpture that you see in the photo on the left. So it it was kind of stunning to realize that um, the the damage that had occurred. And you see here the um, Hatra Gallery, which was captured in the, in the Dash video of them smashing sculptures. A lot of people ask, because at the time there was a lot of speculation when the videos were released in uh, early uh, 2016, whether they were real sculptures, or sorry, it was early 2015, whether the sculptures were real because um, people could see rebar and plaster as the sculptures were being knocked over. Most of the sculptures were real, but they had been um, conserved with plaster and rebar um, decades ago. And so that's kind of what you were seeing. But unfortunately, most everything you saw was authentic. Um, 
This is the Islamic gallery. And as you see, many, many of the pieces uh, mounted up on the wall are missing. And this is the library after the fire. Um, and this is what sort of 27,000 books burned looks like, um, just like a foot of ash on the floor. So this idea of a cold case crime scene. Um, so between the time that ISIS fled and the time that the State Board of Antiquities and Heritage staff regained control of the building, many months elapsed. Um, and those of you who followed this closely would see that there were tons of reporters and groups kind of tromping through this hole. And the hole that you see in the wall here is actually a large hole that was caused by the explosion to blow that Lamassu sculpture you saw earlier off the wall. And it took, that was, that was where I really got my orientation of, of going, okay, this is the hole I keep seeing where people climb in and out of the building and gained access. So tons of people have gone through here. And I was a little bit, um, I was a little bit depressed about the notion that we would try to, uh, to document this as a, as a crime scene because so much time had elapsed and so many people had been through there. But um, we had to do the best we could because the worst thing that could happen is if we didn't do enough or we didn't try, then later on, we were worried that people would say, you, you could have done a better job. We couldn't do a prosecution uh, for these crimes because we didn't have the evidence of what had happened. And so we were determined to do our best. So we, we set up an expert team. Um, we needed a photographer, videographer. We needed engineers to do the building assessment to see if it could be repaired. Uh, conservators to advise on stabilizing the objects and, and doing salvage. We needed a drafting team um, to, to make drawings of the site as well as to go with the photographic documentation. And then we also needed to work with most cultural museum staff themselves. And as I mentioned earlier, we needed security and transportation to take with us. So who would best be able to train us up on what we needed to do for documentation? Luckily, um, I'm part of a, a working group with the US government and interagency group um, that includes the, uh, or I should say on cultural heritage, international programs and projects and protections. And one of my colleagues is um, Jake Archer from the FBI art crime team. And we talked about this a lot, like how to go into a, a place like this and document it as a cold case crime scene. So um, Jake and his team um, and the evidence recovery team at the um, regional office in Philadelphia offered to provide us with a, a quick training that we could use when our team went to Iraq. And so I'm just, this is not necessarily a how-to video because I'm just giving you sort of the 10,000 foot view of overview of, of what we tried to learn how to do before we went. We're still working on creating a real methodology for this that we can share with others so they can look at it. I mean, ideally, if something like this happens at, at your museum, you have law enforcement teams who will come in and and do this work, but in the case of going to Mosul, it there was a, a need to get going on recovery. It had been many months, and so we we were determined to do the best we could within the limitations that we had available. 
And so um, we learned how to take photographs within the building to document it thoroughly for every room. Um, this, is, this is kind of the overview of the training we did. This is such a weird picture, I know, but it's one of the um, training rooms where, the, where they take you through the crime scene documentation process. And you're, you go in there to pick out things that you're not just looking for objects that are damaged or objects that might be missing, but you're also looking for evidence of what might have done the damage there or how this crime might have been committed. So you're looking for things like, um, you see the little number 17 over there, that's, uh, that's a shell from, uh, uh, that's a gun shell. Um, uh, over here you see uh, 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 bullets uh, for a handgun. You see all kinds of different um, things and you, you have to mark it. And then they taught us how to actually go about the documentation um, with your camera and what kind of camera you needed to use, how to, what kind of, you know, uh, SIM card you needed to use, how you have to keep the photos carefully um, documented. And um, once you use a SIM card, you have to, you have to keep it um, in an evidence uh, uh, state where it's locked up and, and nobody has access to it. You can only use it once and you have to keep a very careful log of your photos. So here you can see we did this, um, we use the evidence markers and then you take a, a distant photo, a medium photo, a close-up photo with scale, and then any kind of markings that you have. So you can see the scale on this um, empty round that we found in the, in the training. So um, everybody's seen sort of the crime scene um, drawings uh, in the, in the diff different uh, procedural shows. And this isn't any different. You're looking for, um, for objects that you want to document and draw, and then you're measuring from the walls to make sure that you can show the measurements and the scale of everything. And then those drawings later accompany the actual photographic evidence. And the idea behind all this, as I quickly learned from FBI colleagues, is that you have to be able to create evidence that 10 years from now, if you're no longer around, someone can take that evidence and, and recreate the scene and put it back together in a court of law and explain clearly where's the body, where are the weapons that we found, where are um, the objects that we found in the room and then you can actually show it with the video and any jury can kind of get a sense of what they're seeing. And you're not documenting it, you know, you're not promising that it's, you know, will look like it did right after the crime scene. The idea of a cold case crime scene is you're documenting what you saw on that day when you were there, if that makes sense. So we had to create our own documentation paperwork that's adapted from crime scene paperwork. You need to keep track of, of who all is in the scene when you're there. Make sure that the photo log gets filled out. Um, that's really important because it has to match exactly the, the, um, the storage card that you use in the camera. The photos can't have people in them. They, they have to be documentary only. So this was what we learned in a sort of really fast um, but very thorough course. And then um, 
we started working to plan with our Iraqi colleagues and we went to Iraq in February of 2019. And we had put together our team. We had um, uh, engineers from Gemma Art Group from the Czech Republic. Most of us that came along had not actually been through the FBI training. It was myself and a couple of other colleagues, including our photographer, Sebastian Meyer. So that was really important because that photographic documentation is one of the most important things. And then we had to work out with our Iraqi colleagues exactly how we were gonna do this because our security team would only allow us to be at the Mosul Museum for six hours at a time on two non-consecutive days in, in the week that we were able to be there. So basically we had 12 hours to do this entire museum. Um, we worked out really carefully in, the, in meetings days prior to actually going to Mosul, how we would do this, how we would um, label all the documentation. And this is our colleague Zaid Ghazi, the director of the museum, making sure that we all understand uh, each other because he needs to be able to use this documentation later as well. And so there's our maps. And then the day finally arrives and we get to Mosul and we have to do this full documentation, as I said, very quickly. So um, we had a quick team meeting and we broke up into groups to make sure that we were going places where Sebastian was not photographing. And this is my colleague, um, Brian Michael Leone from the Smithsonian as well. He was our videographer. And it, it kind of was like a ballet. We were trying to be in different parts of the building at different times. Our security was trying to keep track of us. And we very quickly went around the building. And um, so here's just an example of how we did the documentation. Here we have what, the Assyrian hall where the large hole is in the floor. And we take the entry photo and you can see there's nobody in view in the room. And then you step down and you take a close-up of that entry photo. And then you basically go around the room, just like that. And then you go to another corner of the room. So you see in the upper left-hand corner and you go around the room and you do it again. When Sebastian was done with each of the rooms, then I went in with um, Zaid and other colleagues and we marked evidence that we found. So these are, Number 12 are pieces of a rocket propelled grenade. Number 13 um, is um, pieces of paper that look like they might have packaged explosives. And I didn't expect this, but I found that the, the security staff who were with us, many of them were prior special forces and they were very good at finding these little pieces of things that looked like explosives around the building. I recognized a few of the things myself, but they were really adept at finding them. And so once you have one of those evidence numbers, just like we did in the, in the practice training we did in Philadelphia, then we were able to um, document them. Here's a long shot of, of an evidence number. And then here's an area evidence, the explosion of the second Lama Sioux that was in this gallery. Um, this is the evidence basically that it's not on the wall and that explosives were used to blow it off the wall and we documented that. Um, so you see us going around the museum, talking with colleagues, documenting things that are missing. This is Richard Curran, uh, my boss who came with us and he was part of our documentation team. Um, Dr. Curran's an anthropologist and was able to work with the Iraqi team to do a lot of the drawings of the areas 
This is Kent Severson, a conservator who came with us and was working with the conservation colleagues to um, look at pieces, look for pieces that were missing and document them based on other photos and to also advise them on the need for um, stabilizing objects. And see here you see Kent down in that hole looking for pieces of the throne dais. And here's some examples of some of the drawings that we have. So these are these go with the photo documentation, as I mentioned earlier. And they're they're kind of basic, but the measurements are the all-important thing. You can see each piece of rubble and how far away from the wall it was. And, and we started to be able to talk to experts later about maybe what kind of explosives blow things that far away, et cetera. So then uh, a few months later, we put together our preliminary report for the Iraq Ministry of Culture and the State Board of Antiquities and Heritage. And um, meanwhile, the whole time we were working with the Iraqi uh, with the Mosul Museum staff to stabilize the building. Here you see them actually bracing up the floor um, where the giant hole was in the Assyrian gallery and we and, and many more things. So um, I'm, I'm gonna stop at that point that's in between response and recovery because that's really Mosul Museum Project Zero. We, we called it zero because it, we, it was the baseline before we could even start the Mosul Cultural Museum Recovery Project and have the staff actually go through the process of gridding out all the galleries and then picking up all the objects. So then they were able to do that, get things cleaned up and that, then they felt better. Like it's that moment where you say, okay, now I can really recover because we've documented the bad. We've, we've shown the evidence of what happened here in a way that we can prove it for years to come, we have more than 4,500 high resolution images from those days. We have um, hours and hours of, of video footage. We have all these drawings, all these documents, and we can really tell the story of what happened there. And so now things are, are in recovery. The museum is getting cleaned up. We have here um, a very recent visit to the museum from the new Minister of Culture. There's my colleague um, Zaid um, and our other colleague uh, uh, Saad Ahmed Abed, the head of conservation. And um, more recently, the uh, World Monuments Fund has come on board with the project. They're ready uh, as soon as we can. The COVID epidemic has really slowed things down, but we're ready to start the work on the renovation of the building. And you know, the good news was is that the engineers found out the building certainly can be renovated and our colleagues are eager to see it built back better and, and in the same style as um, Mohammed Makia's um, fantastic design. And, and they're really anxious to work with the colleagues at the Louvre who are doing, uh, working with them on the actual conservation treatment of the objects that can be recovered. Many, many are heavily damaged, but the idea is um, over, the, over the next couple of years, they're gonna work to figure out what pieces they have available, what pieces are missing forever. And also working with um, the National Museum in Baghdad for Mosul Museum collections objects that can return to the museum 
once it's ready and renovated. And we're also working on a training project with our colleagues to talk about opening and operating the museum after it's been renovated. So that's the story of Mosul Museum Project Zero. And I will stop there and um, we'll have uh, questions. Thank you very much, Corinne. That is an absolutely extraordinary, compelling account of, of the, the painstaking forensic detail that you have to address in this initial stage of recovery. And I know that for those of us who do remember these sites from news footage, it's quite a shock to look at them again from or through your eyes and to think about uh, just, just the amount of work that has to be done even before any kind of reconstruction can start. Uh, lots of people have already started to put questions into the Q&A. Please, everyone listening, if you have questions, do continue uh, to put them into the Q&A uh, function. Before we come to you, I, I'd like to bring in Christine Morris. Um, Christine, I know you'll have listened enthralled to that, as we all did. Uh, let me ask you now if you'd, you'd uh, say a few words in response to what Corinne has shared with us. Christine. Okay, that, that, that's great. Thank you so much, um, Eve. I'd like to add to your thanks um, on behalf of everyone listening. Huge, huge thank you. Yes, I was enthralled um, to Corinne for this fascinating talk. It's really wonderful that we've all had the opportunity to join in this virtual community to hear this as well. If there's been any good thing about COVID, it's been the, the dissemination of seminars and talks in this virtual thing to share things. Uh, but I think that one of the things that we're missing is that you would have an, a rapturous round of applause at this point, um, which is has to stay virtual as well. And I also think that, you know, we will have a good discussion now, I think, with the questions and so on. But it would be so much more dynamic in person. And also, we you've said how much you love Dublin, and we can't offer you any hospitality. So you have to come again so we can do that properly too. Um, so that's a, a bit of a preamble. Um, as Eve kindly said, my professional background is as an archaeologist. I work in the Mediterranean, largely in places that are more safe and less under threat than this. But I do do work in Cyprus, which obviously has had its own uh, wars and cultural destruction as well. So this is hugely interesting. None of those kinds of processes were in place to document things destroyed, I, I, I think, in, in the war in Cyprus. So this work is enormously important. It's time sensitive, as you've shown, with this careful crime scene methodology. And it is, as I think we discussed briefly on Friday when we, we first met online, how analogous that is to archaeological work, at least in, in some ways that the really, really important thing is recording context, context, context. If you don't do that, you've, you, you've lost that information forever. And of course, you've developed that with a view to this very important um, issue of providing robust evidence for war crimes trials in the future. And as eloquently demonstrated in your talk, this has obvious value, not only for this case study of the Mosul Museum, but as a developing template that can be deployed quickly if there are other, or when there are other tragic such cases 
of destruction. And as you said, where there isn't a, a local law enforcement team uh, to come in. But I'd also like to say that it's more than a practical template. Something that I found um, inspiring was hearing how it was an model of respectful collaboration between international partners so the smithsonian and your cultural rescue initiative and also there you mentioned the the, the louvre colleagues and their conservators together with the local iraqi stakeholders so i say that because if you look historically archaeology as a practice and indeed the acquisition of museum collections globally have deep roots in imperialism and colonialism. And so it's essential that we move decisively beyond such power imbalances in our future cultural heritage relationships. So I, I, I was just very um, delighted to, to see that. I'd like to structure, I will keep it short because I know people don't want to listen to me, they want to hear you talking more about it. I'd just like to, as Eve did, briefly recap on the themes of the Out of the Ashes series because I think they, they're relevant very much to what you were talking about. And I'd also like to thank warmly the guiding hand behind uh, that series, my colleague Dr Peter Crooks from our School of Histories and Humanities for inviting me to say a few words this evening. The series has a narrative arc in three parts, as Eve already said, and uh, elegantly over three years. So first of all, thinking about collecting, then looking at examples of loss and destruction, where collections and buildings have been subject to targeted attack. And I must say, until hearing you talk, I had not realized the extent of the structural damage to the building as well as the, the objects. So that was interesting too. These examples poignantly show how cultural destruction is an integral part of the dismantling and erasure of identity and memory. Many of the most urgent and extreme challenges today do come from destruction in war, such as these in the Middle East, but also along man-made destruction, we face increasing environmental damage and destruction. And there's an example of that, which, which Eve also briefly referred to. I was reading up earlier on the role that you had played the key role in Haiti in the aftermath of the uh, 2010 earthquake, where you coordinated the astonishing preservation of over 30,000 heritage objects. So I think the environmental and man-made challenges are, are both ones uh, which face us repeatedly. Now in its third and final year, Out of the Ashes moves to recovering, which obviously was your theme. What then can be done to counteract and compensate for loss and destruction. It can encompass everything from the painstaking recording of immediate aftermath of destruction, as discussed this evening. Uh, although I then saw that, you know, I needed a bigger space there, that it wasn't quite immediate. But obviously you were coming in and there'd already been uh, disturbance to the scene. And to what extent in the next stage, the destroyed and damaged objects and monuments can be saved or restored, what, what happens next? Um, and perhaps that that's the next bit of the story we would have to get you to come back and tell us more about that um, as well. Um, another thread in the idea of recovery, these kinds of conversations, is also not so relevant here, I suppose, unless some of these objects, as I suspect might be the case, have been looted and sold on to other places. I don't know how extensive that was, but the idea also of saving or restoring things by 
repatriating them, so bringing objects um, home. Those sorts of discussions are not new, uh, but I think they're worth mentioning here um, at this moment uh, because they are gaining momentum in the context of other wider discussions, critical discussions about imperial and colonial legacies. And one illustration of this, um, if anyone's looking for something good to read, is a recently published book by on the Benin Bronzers by Dan Hicks. It takes us to a different part of the world. Um, and he takes no prisoners, even in his book title. It's called The Brutish Museums, The Benin Bronzers, Colonial Violence and Cultural Restitution. So I think that just gives another aspect to this, this sort of wide, challenging um, world that we are faced with when we're thinking about recovery. As I've already mentioned, my archaeological perspective made me see many parallels between a crime scene and an archaeological site. The more carefully both are recorded with as much detail of context as possible and the joke about archaeology which we always share with the students what are the three most important things in archaeology context 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 the more fully then we can understand the processes or moments with which we are confronted and the crime scene, whether an act of destruction, as we saw in the museum, or something familiar from one of those procedural uh, programs we're all addicted to, CSI and so on, is perhaps closest to the kind of archaeology that engages not so much with processes, messy lives lived over a long time, and more with intense frozen moments. Although I had written that down before I heard you speak, so I see that actually it's a bit in between the two. It's frozen, but also messy. Um, at the same uh, time. And as you said in the talk, it's only by that painstaking recording um, multiple photographs from many angles, which I'm guessing would allow you perhaps to do some photogrammetry um, as well, that you will eventually be able to tell what is there and what was not there at the time of destruction. Acts of destruction leave behind them fragments, and whether that's those broken statues in the Mosul Museum, the Roman arch at Palmyra, or indeed the Bamyan Buddhas in Afghanistan. As was intended by those who committed the acts of destruction, we are emotionally affected by seeing what was once whole reduced to fragments. It is a form of cultural trauma. So what might recovery look like? And I also thought that I'm, you know, it really spoke to me when you said that idea, I've got to tidy it up, I've got to fix it. I think that's a natural response to trauma and to have to pull back and say, okay, we want recovery, we want some form of, of healing and moving forward, but it has to be done in, in this very careful way. I, I just found that very, very interesting. The careful recording undertaken by Corinne and her team is designed, of course, initially to facilitate trials for war crimes, but in parallel it also, as we also saw, establishes the baseline from which other kinds of decisions can then be made. What can be restored is enough left will it still be authentic? And those in, in things we do with the students in, in college, we're discussing those and things with the Bamyan Buddhas and things. They're very difficult, complex questions. And in each case, there will be different solutions. It just struck me as a closing thought that one major element in our toolkit now is digital recording. And that 
links back also to Peter's project, of course. We can do things now that we couldn't do before. They don't necessarily remove the trauma or the loss, but whether they're detailed photography or scanning, they allow us to some extent to recreate objects and to save memory in digital form, giving us yet another way to ensure that the past is not truly lost. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Christine. You, you've helped put this in a, a wider context and you've raised uh, some of the many conceptual questions that will inevitably come up in response to uh, what Corinne has been talking about. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking at dozens of questions coming in from our audience and some really interesting uh, uh, questions as well. But let me go first to uh, a special guest who's with us this evening, Zoe Reed. And Zoe is <laughs> Field. Zoe, are you there? Can you introduce yourself? And and yes, uh, I'm here. Hi, Corin. Um, nice, nice to meet you. Um, yeah, I'm in the very lucky position that I'm chair of the Irish uh, National Committee of Blue Shield. I took over from Lar, who I know you know very well last year. Um, but also, I'm the senior conservator in the National Archives. So um, I'm involved in the conservation work of the material that was salvaged in 1922 after the destruction of the Public Record Office. And as I've just tweeted, gosh, I wish they'd had a camera back in 1922 um, because I'm literally um, working on a project. I'm unwrapping the documents that they parceled up back then and doing the conservation work on them. But in so obviously disaster recovery is something that I'm hugely involved in. And I have so many questions from your presentation, which was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, but I suppose just to limit it to one, it's what response would you give um, to first, uh, first responders from a cultural protection property kind of background? Um, what advice would you give to them for that initial when they go in and they see the trauma, that, that they're experiencing trauma when they go into that destructed site? It's always something I think about if we did a disaster in the National Archives, how I would coach our staff through that disaster recovery process. So I know it's a bit, it's a bit open, but um, if there's anything, I mean, the documentation and the photography is just fascinating to hear about and to do it without getting people cluttered into your um, images is really interesting. Yeah, that, that was a little bit of the one of the tough parts because it's while it's a it's a medium sized museum, but still the the it was hard to kind of but that was why it was so important to work together ahead of time to kind of create the the system whereby we would all be doing something useful, but stay out of each other's way. So, um, well, I guess the advice that I would give to people is, is to um, don't let the disaster be the first time you work together, first of all, because if you have your, if you're working for an institution where you're working together all the time on, you know, working on exhibitions and working on collections management, that, you know, there are plenty of opportunities to work on your uh, uh, disaster response plan. And part of that can be how will we document this depending on what the disaster is. And you know, there's all kinds of good reasons to document even in any type of disaster. It could be for insurance purposes. It could be to just you know figure out how you will salvage things later, and so that you you can just do a quick you know 360 around the room, so you know what objects are in each exhibition gallery at any given time. There's lots of you know tools that you can use with um, with uh, 
museum management collection systems to figure out where things are at any given time. So don't, but don't let the disaster be the first time you really try to make a plan for how you're gonna do that recovery and salvage because that, you know, there's not an excuse for that when we work together all the time. But in this case, it was a little harder because we, many of us had never been there. And so walking in there for the first time was, was a little daunting, but luckily our colleagues were able to talk us through it before we got there. So that, that, you know, just if you're helping others at a place you haven't been before, it's so important to get, get colleagues who are familiar with the collections to work with you. Thank you, Karina. Thank you very much, Zoe, for, for being with us and, and for that uh, important question. And a few other people in the questions have asked about the trauma and the emotional effects mm -hmm. on, uh, on the first responders, uh, as it were. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, good to have that covered. I wonder if I can actually come, it's, it came in as a comment um, rather than a question, but it is from Jerry Lane. And in fact, he's Colonel Jerry, Jerry Lane from the Defence Forces of Ireland. And Jerry, uh, you thank everyone for the excellent presentation uh, and particularly Corrine. Um, but I'm wondering, given the nature of your own work, Jerry, if I could turn that back to Corrine and ask about the military background that you brought to, uh, to this work. Obviously, you mentioned working with special forces in Iraq uh, on the ground and how helpful that was in identifying um, the kind of ordnance and, and bits of shrapnel and so on that might show up. Were there other aspects of your own professional background with the military that you could not have done this without having? Um, well, I don't, I don't think so. I think that anybody could could take on board, you know, figuring out how to do this system. I think it helps, um, especially the 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 part where we were going into a still relatively unstable conflict zone. That that does pose a little bit of a, I think having done that before, having worn body armor before, having ridden in, you know, um, bulletproof vehicles with people with guns, that it felt like another, you know, other missions I had done in the past. And I'd also been on peacekeeping missions in Bosnia and things like that as well, um, where I didn't have such a cultural heritage mission. But so that's helpful. But um, some of my colleagues that I worked with don't have any military background and they did it just fine. So <laughs> I won't say that it's not possible. It's just maybe a little more comfortable on that first trip. Good, and I'm gonna move on uh, from that to a question that's coming from a couple of people in different forms. Paula Dwyer, I know you asked about whether the Trump presidency, uh, what, what, what role or what, what help that gave uh, to this kind of work, but Rory Montgomery is also with us. Uh, and his question is similar. What support have you received from the US or other governments? Karina, to broaden that out a bit, what is the role of, of both the US government and the international governments of the places where you're doing this work in, in I suppose, either giving you support or legitimizing the work you're doing or indeed obstructing it at times? Well, I mentioned um, the Iraqi Institute in Erbil, which has received a lot of support over the years from the US government um, going clear back to the 2000s. And um, so that's been ongoing. They've also, um, the Department of State also, uh, and the US Embassy in Iraq, both have supported the work at Nimrud um, for the archeological recovery there. 
but it takes, you know, it takes a lot of, of players in all this because it's, it's expensive and it's long-term. And so that's why it was so fantastic when Aleph um, was created and that that's a um, fund of over $80 million um, that's dedicated just to cultural heritage impacted by armed conflict. So that's huge and, and many other donors. But so, you know, the, the government, um, governments do have a responsibility under the 1954 Hague Convention for the protection of cultural property and armed conflict. And that's one of the reasons that the Blue Shield US thought it was so important to make our primary mission when we were founded the uh, ratification of that treaty, because then it gets easier to explain the responsibilities under the Hague Convention. We followed it here in the US as customary international law. But you know, once it becomes the law of war, which the Hague Convention is, it, it makes it easier um, to work with colleagues. And I know we have many, many military colleagues on the line, um, some colleagues from the UK, um, Cultural Property Protection Unit, and maybe even some from the new um, US uh, group of monuments officers that I'm working with at the Smithsonian for training right now. So um, the, I, 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 I won't say anything particular about the Trump administration because I don't think it either helped or hindered particularly the project we're talking about tonight. Um, I don't think it was very helpful to talk about, you know, possibly striking um, cultural heritage in Iran, which quickly, you know, everybody who's worked in this field understands that targeting cultural heritage for an armed conflict purpose is not allowed under international law. So that wasn't very helpful. But um, overall, I, I think that um, governments, for the most part, recognize their responsibilities to protect heritage in armed conflicts and that when heritage is damaged, they have a responsibility. And we as cultural heritage professionals have a responsibility to help our colleagues with that recovery, just like we would help um, anybody in humanitarian recovery around the world. This is just an extension of that. If you wanna help people, help them save their heritage. And it's, and it's never, and just a, as in a, you know, uh, going on with that. And, you know, some people think it's too early, um, you know, with the humanitarian recovery, but as we've seen, sometimes we can lose things if we don't try and get started as quickly as possible. Um, so anyway, that's, that's my story about government responsibility. Well, you're, you're talking, of course, about uh, the practice of international law as the context in which you work. And obviously, one of the things that we all have to face is that you're dealing here with damage that has been done, extensive damage, because of groups that work outside mm -hmm. the remit of international law. Um, and, and Christine might come in on this as well, or perhaps Peter, but it's a question that's come in, and I think a very important one, from Lisa Doyle, uh, who asks, what message do you think this project or work of this kind sends to those who are seeking to destroy cultural heritage sites? I suppose that's a tricky question because you know we, we we don't know the chain of communication that there might be from the work that initial stage of work that you're doing back to the perpetrators of these crimes but I wonder Corinne if you've any thoughts on that do you are you motivated by this sense of sending a message is that part of the the task that you undertake I, I think it's I, I think my Iraqi colleagues after you know many hours of conversation about this would say we're we're trying to show that 
um, intentional destruction of heritage can't win, that we, we will prevail, our heritage will you know, still be here long after your ideology has passed. And um, that it also, but it's not just, a, it's more of a message for the people, the stakeholders, the um, heritage bearers, that we will go on. This is a message of hope for the people of Mosul. And I think, you know, what, what I like to think is um, that within a short time, they won't have to think about Dash at all. They'll be focused on their own recovery and how they can move forward. So, and, and having your heritage by your side helps with that. And I do, Christine, I don't know if you, you want to come in on that because you, you, you connected, you made connections to what we're looking at at the moment in terms of cultural restitution and, and uh, the restoration of cultural artifacts um, to, um, to their original context, if those contexts indeed still exist. Uh, how much do you think this sense of sending a message is behind those parallel initiatives um, in terms of, of that, that process? Mm, I, I yeah, I think that that's relevant. I also just just sort of add a small thing to to what Corinne said, that that it is. I, I think that the message is for, is is for and belonging to the people that the the cultural heritage belongs to in in their local community. But it's also giving them another tool for future recovery, uh, because cultural heritage in most of the countries where these things happen are important economically as well for cultural tourism. Obviously, that's not going to happen at this moment, but to restore that, you're also restoring confidence in, in, in that as well. So I think it does have an economic um, dimension alongside it. Um, to do with repatriation, I think that the message is, is in a different way. The message is sort of sending a message that you're acknowledging that something needs to be fixed. It's a rather different set of relationships. Uh, but I, uh, hand on heart, for example, I think the Parthenon marbles belong in Athens, let's say. I think that there are things um, that, that need to be done um, that are, are sort of setting things in, in a in a better space for everybody so it's a little like Corinne was saying I mean it's the message that's received by let's say the the overall um, population or group who've lost these things or who don't have them available and there's a whole series of economic cultural and emotional reasons why those those things should should happen yes yeah, so I think there is a, a relationship and I think we're in a space now where there's just a uh, you know, a lot of things are moving in that direction and quite rapidly um, and far more people are aware of them. And I think that's important too. So the more people are aware of all of these things that are going on, I, I think that that matters as well, that there's a global um, awareness of the kinds of things Karina's group is doing and the requests that people are making for repatriation, that they're not buried in some obscure corner, you know, only cared about by a few of us who work in in the field I think there's a kind of loud set of voices um expressing that this matters exactly exactly and and of course the the, the flip side to the emphasis on recovery that we've been talking about uh, this evening is of course that things sadly are lost forever um and in this case we could see from your photographs Corinne that that you know, no matter how much work you put into the process of documenting in this forensic way what happened at the scene, 
that this is a story of losses that cannot be recovered. There are lots of questions about dealing with this. Um, Sahar Ahmed says what estimate or what percentage of the Mosul Museum's holdings are irrevocably lost. And I know Ralph Moore, Ralph, you were asking as well about the, the I suppose the legal pursuit of what then goes onto the black market um, of things that have been stolen or looted uh, from the museum. Um, Corinne, I know your, your, your zero approach doesn't go on to look at this uh, train of what goes missing. Um, but do you think about it when you're in this stage of first response? Do you speculate on what has happened? And do you have any strategy for thinking about how to even symbolically replace what has been lost? Can it be still registered in any way? Yeah, I, th I think that there, there is a um, plan to work on that and that the, the evidence-based documentation we did at the beginning feeds into that. So just, just for example, it's pretty clear that, for instance, in the Islamic galleries where you saw those um, um, tombstones removed from the wall, there was no evidence of, of rubble of those. Um, and they were they were removed. They weren't blown off. So just just knowing having that documentation that shows, you know, that those are those are no longer there, and there's no rubble. So that that means they're somewhere. So that just just knowing that, and and everything in the museum was pretty carefully documented. So um, our our colleagues and the colleagues from the Louvre and and from the Mosul Museum are are making um, making some assumptions based on that. And, and it, it'll be up to the Iraqi government to pursue, um, you know, to take the information that we've given them and to pursue that path. Um, and I also wanted to just briefly say that one of the challenges when we first embarked on this project is I went around to everybody I've met in my time working with the Blue Shield and um, working on Hague Convention issues. And I said, whose responsibility is it to do this documentation? And the answer was the, the host nation, the, the nation that's been damaged, it's their responsibility to document it. And I said, isn't that a little bit like telling a victim to investigate the crime against them? I just don't really quite understand that. So that was part of my um, passion and kind of trying to develop this project. And I hope that we can find some better ways to think about that in the future too. So there's been a crime of theft. There's been a crime of deliberate, you know, assault on culture, um, on cultural sites. And so how do we, how do we move forward in doing a better job of documenting that kind of crime in the future? And, and on that note, I know we've uh, got Tim Perbrick with us, and Tim, who I think uh, works in this field as well. Um, is uh, asking about uh, um, various preparations that should be and can be put in place. He's talking about working with the our military police to be prepared for this kind of situation. Um, but uh, he's asking as well, uh, how did you find your experiences in Mosul and Baghdad different? And Karine, that brings me to Donald Denham as well, who's asking about the recent news, the lethal bombing in Baghdad, which of course, tragically we, we saw just a few days ago, when you look at the current situation as one that's still very unstable, uh, are there things that you think of that are preemptive that could be done or that should be being done in, in uh, places that 
might well still suffer, unfortunately, this kind of devastation? Well, first of all, greetings to Colonel Tim. Um, thanks for tuning in. Um, yeah, there, there are many, many preparatory things, um, mitigation that, that you can do. Um, at the Iraq Museum, the staff was well aware in the weeks leading up to the US invasion that there was um, the, the high probability of the invasion coming and even against um, the uh, worrying about um, being punished by the regime for moving collections out of the galleries and into hidden storage. I mean, that's, that's taking a risk, right? Because you're kind of admitting that you might perhaps lose and then the, the collections might be damaged, et cetera. And so they, they took measures to hide most of the collections in hidden storage and therefore saved it, even though many things did get looted and some storage areas were broken into, some of the most important priority objects were hidden away. So um, that's just, that's one thing that you can do to prepare for the possibility of conflict. And in fact, it's not just a, a good to have thing. I think maybe what, um, what Tim Perbrick is aiming me toward is saying it's part of the Hague Convention. Every state's party that signs the Hague Convention has a responsibility to prepare during times of peace for the possibility of war. And that's not just a military responsibility, it's a cultural heritage community responsibility. In some countries it's easy because there's a Ministry of Culture whose job it is to make sure that they're doing that. In the US, we don't have a Department of Culture um, so we, we work together in an interagency inter way and with our Department of Interior, et cetera. But um, so it is, it is our responsibility and not just a nice thing to do. It's part of being part of the treaty. So. Thanks, Corinne. I, and, and thank you, Tim, for that. I am aware that I haven't uh, addressed many questions that have come in about the technology involved in this work. But just very briefly, I'll mention a couple. Uh, it, that have been asked about in the questions. Claire Brown asks about, did you consider the use of 360 degree photography for scene recording? Uh, Sarah Sherlock is also asking about geomatics um, uh, and do you produce a direct digital catalog? You probably won't have time now, Carino, to talk in great detail about the, the technical uh, equipment that you are, uh, that you're using in these situations. Briefly, if you could either speak to those or perhaps say something about any current developments in technology that really will help with these situations. And I'm saying that knowing that, of course, uh, some of the work that Peter Crooks is doing with the Beyond 2022 project is an extraordinary digital reconstruction, as Christine was saying, of a, a lost archive. Um, as we make advancements in technology, other things that you will be able to, you look forward to bringing to help with these situations? Or have we gone as far as we can? Oh, I'm almost certainly not, but you are speaking to the probably least techie person that was on our entire team. Um, we did do 360 degree films, um, video, sorry, video, um, but for, for legal purposes, the high-res photography was the priority. It was the most important, but we, we did both. So that's why we had a videographer and a photographer. Um, and most certainly, I'm sure that there will be advances that will allow even more rapid documentation 
And that that goes to both, you know, before disaster strikes and so that you have regularly updated um, information about your collections and and have that imagery for in case it does come up missing because as I was told um, by Interpol folks um, back in the back when I was after the Iraq Museum um, looting, if you don't have photos, there's no way for us to look for this kind of, you know, so it's really important. That's kind of the most important thing collections managers can do is have at least good photography. But I'm, I'm excited about how um, technology just keeps leaping forward. And the biggest risk I think for a project like this is that, is that um, we have to keep this documentation up to date for the current technology in some way and not have bit rot where we, you know, the idea is that you'll have this for the future. And what if technology goes forward so fast that, you know, if you have a floppy disk, that could be a problem, you know. Exactly. Well, we're all familiar with that kind of uh, predicament and, uh, and technical um, incapacity. Um, Corinne, thank you so much. I, I'm really sorry that we are having to uh, close this session because there are many more questions, really fascinating questions that we didn't get round to. I think the solution to all of them, Corinne, is to ask you to come back and talk to us again, ideally when you can be with us in Dublin in person because this is an extraordinary story and uh, and obviously there's a lot more to tell and a lot more to discuss. Uh, before we close I want to just uh, alert everyone to uh, well first of all the next lecture in the Out of the Ashes series. This is going to be on the 22nd of March and it is being given by Ana Lucia Arujo who's speaking on the death of the National Museum of Brazil slavery heritage on the edge 22nd of march do watch out on the hub website for that to be announced uh, i think it'll be another fantastic discussion in this series and of course to remind you all we're beginning to look forward to the finale of the out of the ashes series and this will mark the centenary of the fire at the customs house in dublin uh, and the finale is going to be in may 2021 for that centenary, there'll be a research showcase and a panel event entitled Irish History Out of the Ashes, which is going to be organised uh, along with the Beyond or in collaboration with the Beyond 2022 project, which we've spoken about, various government uh, agencies and the commemorations unit of the Department of Culture, Heritage and the Gale Talk. So that's going to be a very important event in May of this year. And again, all the information will be on the Hub website. But for now, uh, to close on all of your behalf, let me thank very warmly our speaker this evening, Corinne Wagner, um, and also my colleagues, Christine Morris, uh, and as always, Peter Crooks, who has organized this just terrific series. Thank you also to the team in the Trinity Longroom Hub, and particularly Francesca Rafti and Aoife King. And I also want to express my gratitude once again to Sean and Sarah Reynolds, uh, who helped make this terrific series possible for us all. Uh, to everyone who has joined us, thank you all very much for being with us. And do keep an eye on the Trinity Longroom Hub website for future events. We look forward to having you with us again very soon. Good night, everyone. Thank you.
The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.